Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. They said I got away in a boat And humbled me at the inquiry I tell you I sank as far that night as any hero As I sat shivering on the dark water I turned to ice to hear my costly life go Thundering down in a pandemonium of prams, pianos, sideboards, winches, boilers bursting and shredded ragtime. The balance between privacy and creative expression, between a private life and an artistic voice, is always a delicate and often a contentious business. Does an artist's life story shed invaluable light on her or his work, or are the two entirely separate? And should the writer, the painter, the composer be left alone to get on with whatever it is they do best? This question goes to the heart of a debate around a recently published biography of the poet Derek Mahan, the first such book on the life and work of one of Ireland's most respected and compelling poets. After the Titanic, A Life of Derek Mahan is written by Stephen Ennis, former director of Emory University's Manuscript and Archives Library in Georgia in the US, a position that gave him unique access to Derek Mahan's papers, which are held at Emory, as indeed are the literary papers and archives of many of Ireland's leading writers. Stephen Ennis had been acquainted with Mahan over many years, but as he acknowledges in the afterword to the book, the impending publication of After the Titanic caused the poet anxiety and had been disturbing his peace of mind. Ennis, for his part, says that the book is intended to honour Derek Mahan and his poetry and shed light on the events that have inspired some of his persistent themes and strengths. Include me in your lamentations I've been talking to Stephen Ennis about his book and first asked him how he came to write after the Titanic. Well, um, I met Derek in the early 1990s and I was curator of literary collections at Emory University in Atlanta. Derek had recently established his own literary archive there, and it became my very pleasurable task of adding to that archive and collecting new materials as they were written. So as I've sometimes said to friends, I had the job of meeting Derek first in New York, later in Dublin, uh, later in London, and often collecting his most recent work. Um, I remember meeting him in New York in the mid-1990s, and he gave me a carrier bag emblazoned with that logo, I Love New York, and inside were the, uh, the manuscripts of a Hudson Letter, which had not yet appeared in book form. What a gift. So I, I read, read that book first in manuscript and only later saw it in printed form. 
And that was a, a very powerful thing. I was a great admirer of that poem, as I am of his early work. And uh, it was really a, an admiration for the poems that drew me to this topic. I didn't begin the book for some years after that. Stephen Ennis, one of the things in the book is the list of everything you contain, the chronology uh, of Derek Mahan's life. And it's, it's a very useful way of looking at Mahan's life, career, uh, his history of publication, and must have taken quite a bit of putting together. It, it certainly did, but it was a labor of love. And, um, you know, it was important to me in particular to get the chronological list of poems by date of, of first publication. His poems have often been disassociated from the life, and so the first task is to reconnect them uh, chronologically with what was going on at that particular moment in his life. Uh, Because of his own publication history, that's not always clear from the volumes themselves, and so it's available here. And how important was the material in Emory in terms of, of writing this book? Well, the archive um, is is essential and will be a resource for all future biographers and, and critical studies as well of Derek's work. Uh, absolutely essential. But there are, are materials in many collections scattered in Ireland and uh, in the UK and elsewhere. Uh, so I drew on many archival collections and some materials in private hands. Many people shared uh, letters with me that they still had in their possession. And so um, it was partly a, a project of excavation, if you will, digging up and discovery. Excavation, but not archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Elman, of course, had, had a very strong connection to Emory, and uh, that must be quite an inspiration for a biographer. Yeah, I wish I had overlapped with Richard Elman. He was there before I was, but uh, he had been named the first Woodruff professor at Emory University in the late 1970s. And what that meant was that uh, students were going to be coming from around the country and indeed around the world to uh, study under Richard Elman. And so at the time, it was very important that the library build research collections that could support original research in fields that that Elman was teaching. Uh, Seamus Heaney visited in the 1980s and gave the first Richard Elman lecture at the university. And when, when Seamus visited, he deposited at the library his, the manuscript drafts of his, his lectures, the Elman lectures. And that was really the first contemporary poetry material that the university acquired. Uh, but it grew rapidly from that. And um, my job really was to um, continue to grow that archive. And so the, the Michael Longley and Derek Mann papers came in the early 90s, but many of the other uh, poets from the North and from the South came to the library during those years, including Paul Muldoon's archive and Thomas Kinsella, uh, Kieran Carson, Maeve McGuckian, Peter Fallon and his gallery press. That archive also made it to Emory. And so um, as the archives grew and grew, um, became familiar, uh, intimately familiar with uh, the larger circle of which Derek was a part. And when I decided to undertake a a book project, Derek was, was the logical choice. When you decided to undertake, say, that book project, was it initially planned as a biography or, or had you intended maybe to look at, at the work in, in the context of the material that had come into the archive? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't sure in the early days. Um, I knew there would be a biographical dimension. I read Derek's poetry as intimately connected to his life experience. In, in fact, often uh, when I would see him in various cities, our conversation would, would turn 
turn on the autobiographical elements of his poetry. And I felt uh, in those early years that he was sharing with me detail that needed to be recorded. And so it began uh, very simply as a, an effort to record things that I was, I was hearing often from Derek himself. And uh, I was convinced that the poems were connected to the life. And I think, uh, as I say in the book at one point, it's been read as a commentary on uh, Ulster Protestant culture, or as Hugh Houghton puts it uh, very effectively, as a a protest against modernity. And and those are are good readings, uh, wise readings. Um, But there's also something uh, very personal about the poems. And uh, I came to feel that the poems would be deeper for some readers, more meaningful for some readers, if they were connected to that life experience, not cut off from it. I want to talk in particular about the poem which gives the book its title after the Titanic and your particular interpretation of that, because a great deal, in a sense, hinges around how you read that poem. But before we do talk about Mm -hmm. your interpretation of it, let's hear uh, the poet himself, Derek Mahan, reading After the Titanic. After the Titanic. They said I got away on a boat and humbled me at the inquiry. I tell you, I sank as far that night as any hero. As I sat shivering in the dark water, I turned to ice to hear my costly life go thundering down in a pandemonium of prams, pianos, sideboards, winches, boilers bursting in shredded ragtime. Now I hide in a lonely house behind the sea, where the tide leaves broken toys and hat boxes silently at my door. The showers of April, flowers of May mean nothing to me, nor the late light of June, when my gardener describes to strangers how the old man stays in bed on seaward mornings after nights of wind, takes his cocaine and will see no one. Then it is I drown again with all those dim, lost faces I never understood. My poor soul screams out in the starlight, heart breaks loose and rolls down like a stone. Include me in your lamentations. Derek Mann there reading After the Titanic. Stephen Ennis, um, you talk about that poem as being the key poem for accessing the personal trauma, as you say, in Mann's past. And, of course, his maternal grandfather worked on the building of the Titanic and his father worked at Harland and Wolfe all his life. So there's a strong family and personal connection to the reality and mythology around the Titanic. But your interpretation of the poem and the way you say others have read it, tell me about how you see this as the key to so much of man. Well, the the poem actually works on quite a few different levels. And on the broadest level, it works as a commentary really about the decline of the shipyards in the north and the larger societal changes that were under underway over the course of Derek's Derek's life. But it does, as as you note, have a familial dimension as well. It's a very personal experience of the Titanic that Derek had. But I I use uh, the poem metaphorically to refer to what really becomes a pattern of trauma in uh, Derek's life. There are, are numerous experiences of trauma, of injury of, of one kind or another that begin quite early in his life. His estrangement from his parents, his expulsion from, from Trinity, his um, breakdown during his Trinity, his second year at Trinity, 
his um, later breakup from his first love, the great first love of his life with uh, Jill Schlesinger, and um, later the breakup of his own marriage, uh, not to mention the, the alcoholic crises that recurred with alarming frequency in Derek's life. And in each of these instances and others, too, there, there were moments of real crisis and even, even trauma, I argue. And Derek's impulse has often been towards flight, as Bruce Ismay's is, certainly, in that poem. Uh, Bruce Ismay being the, the, the chairman of the, of the White Star Line. That's uh, right. Who is said to have escaped in a lifeboat with women and children. That's so right. fleeing from a disaster that was in part of his making. That's right. And um, Derek does create a kind of personal mythology out of the Titanic. Uh, One of the reasons he became a compelling subject for me is that I I think his personal story parallels in in a number of ways um, a larger human story or a larger cultural story about Northern Ireland at the time. And so um, that's part of the success of his poetry, that what began on a very personal level also works on a a larger societal level and on the level of of myth. I I think the poem uh, touches all of those chords. But recognizing its, its origin in trauma, I think, is key. And the book offers an account of some of those experiences in a way that will help us see the poems fresh, I believe. Uh, you say that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, as, as you see it, uh, Drake Mahan's art comes from suffering. How do you know how he feels about this book and about some of that suffering and those personal traumas being made public in this way? And has he read the book? Has he approved it? Derek has has not read the full book. He has read a portion of the book. Um, in the early period when I first began this project, he he was deeply supportive of it and and would even refer to it uh, as our book. Um, but it became important for him on one level and for me on another to um, to have a book that was not written by by Derek Mann, but was my uh, reading of this this history. So I do think over the time I've been working on it, it has become. Uh, my book, but clearly his story. It may be an uncomfortable thing for him to be reminded of some of the history that's in this book, uh, but I don't think that I've told that history in an exploitative way. Instead, I've, I've tried to, as you say, draw the connection between his art and how that art is really rooted in these traumatic experiences. I, I personally feel that poetry that is not connected to a lived experience in some way is a very shriveled and and weak thing. And that much of the power of Derek's poetry actually comes from the life experience that, that informs it. My hope is that the book will give us a new avenue for approaching the poems and appreciating his poetry and that Derek too will come to see it as that in time. I suppose writing a biography is, obviously has huge challenges and risks, especially when the subject is, is alive, as Derek Mahan happily is. Um, what's true and whose truth are just two of the areas, and then the ethics of invading privacy, potentially invading it, and the ambiguity and blurring of life and art, especially when it comes to the life of a poet or an artist. How did you seek to reconcile all of those elements in setting out on this delicate, Li- and and sometimes difficult life story. You know, I think I think it's time it's time for the book. I I believe, and um, Derek Mann has 
been putting his own literary life in order, as we know, by looking at the recent publications, whether it's the collected poems or the reissue of the collected poems, whether it's his prose that's also been collected or his translations or his writing for the theater. Uh, he himself has put together um, the bookends, as it were, of, of his literary life making possible an appraisal of that of that life's work. In addition, he established the archive himself, uh, which will, from this point forward, be the primary resource for all future biographical and many critical studies of Derek's work. And so these these essential pieces have come together, and of course Derek himself was was available uh, to talk to, as were many of the people that I interviewed over the course of writing this book. Uh, when he was talking, though, did he yeah. know that he was talking for the purposes of a biography? Because yeah, I remember a, a piece he wrote about a, the young Ivan Boland, and he said that people used to chide him for not remembering their, their conversations, and he said, what was I supposed to do? Take notes, yeah. uh, as in we were friends and we were just having having chats so i wasn't going to take notes i mean again is 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 there an issue here around what's known and what's not you know if a writer for instance is somebody who is giving of their their life their time their information mm-hmm. isn't aware that a biography is being planned does that oh, no. raise other questions no 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 derek was well aware of of what the book was and as i say read early chapters of it when it began in the mid-1990s, Derek was actually considering uh, writing a memoir himself. Um, he only wrote a, a short, uh, a single essay, and, and abandoned the larger project. But I'd like to think that the book that I've pressed ahead with, in fact, completes in some sense the, the life story that he found himself unable to press forward with. We mentioned Ivan Boland earlier and Derek Mann's friendship with her going back to their early days in, in Trinity. Uh, and the rare interviews he gives. And one of those uh, was an interview with Ivan Boland. And let's have a listen to an extract from that. What I think set me writing more than anything else was a desire, uh, which no doubt I shared with, uh, with, with everyone, who, uh, everyone at that age, to, uh, to somehow... Um, create an alternative to the situation in which I found myself. And I'm talking about the general misery and wretchedness and ugliness of the city of Belfast, which no one is going to deny. And a feeling that grew upon me when I was 16 or 17, that surely there is more to life than this. Surely there must be something somewhere beautiful and desirable and admirable. Uh, Not this squalor. And so I set about creating, in classic adolescent fashion, an alternative, an alternative world, if you like. And the way I chose to do this was by writing poetry. Um, then by the time I was 18, I was out of Belfast. I continued to write poetry because I found that I was managing to create the kind of alternative world that, uh, that I had wanted to create. But by that stage, being out of Belfast, um, there was no longer the pressure from the wretchedness of the background. You, you speak there of the, the wretchedness, the, the lack of inspiration anyway, in the environment of, of Belfast. You've said already that, that you were pretty, you know, isolated from the religious tension, so it wasn't this that contributed to the wretchedness. What was it that, that you know, invested that environment of North Belfast with 
you know, sufficiently indistinct inspiration to make you want to create another world. Well, not, not, not North Belfast only. And while I wasn't uh, in the forefront of my mind conscious of religious tensions, they are part of the circumstances. They're one of the circumstances which create, which create this wretchedness, this constant sense of bad temper and uh, frustration and impotence uh, that I was trying to get away from. You speak in a way uh, as if, in fact, um, the Protestant community in Belfast, uh, you know, without calling it overtly Protestant, as you obviously didn't, was in some ways a closed um, community, was it? Entirely. One of the most closed communities uh, in Europe, certainly. Uh, I think to get an adequate parallel, you'd have to go to uh, a particularly um, backward community, uh, Africana community in South Africa, or a particularly backward community in the southern states of America, or something like that. And what was it, when you were growing up, that made that seemed to you to make this community closed? As you say, in what small ways, what details did it seem to manifest itself, that closure of that community? Well, I suppose at this point one has to roll out all the old clichés about the swings being tied up on Sundays and the pubs closing at ten. Not that I was going to pubs at that age, at least, not until I was 17 or so. But uh, that sort of thing, the way the streets seemed to, seemed to end at a full stop, nothing seemed to lead anywhere. Uh, the introspection of everyone, the sort of communal introspection, the fact that uh, someone like uh, an uncle of mine, for example, who had been to sea for many years, was to me an immensely romantic figure because he had actually been out of Belfast, if you like. You know, it was incredible to me that this man had spent so long out of the city. A very young Derek Mann and a very young Ivan Boland there from 1970. Um, Stephen Ellis, fascinating to, to hear that and to hear Mann so clear about his his place, his people and his perception of them. Yes, and what's what's striking? I mean, that that was a very early um, interview, and what's what's striking in hindsight now is um, his repetitive movement from one place to another. Uh, it wasn't just getting out of Belfast; it was uh, later um, getting out of London. It was um, getting out of Dublin. It was getting out of New York. There's been a a, a, re- a repeated flight from place, but but often these these places. Um, come to represent a certain um a certain life um a certain self that that Derek lived in in each of those locations and so the the move for him whether it's the original move from from Belfast away from Belfast is is often a kind of metamorphosis a, 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 an opportunity for uh renewal and and hoped for new life um and so part of the story that I'm trying to tell in this book is the story of, of that remaking and the story of these these multiple lives um, that, that all, of, of course, inform the poems that we, we love so much. He doesn't give many interviews. And, and uh, did you manage to record much with him? Um, Derek only uh, consented to be recorded on one occasion a number of years ago in London, and uh, that was a useful interview. But there have been um, over the over his lifetime, uh, they they do add up, and those interviews were were certainly a, an important resource, as was the one that I was able to conduct with him in a formal way. We did have many conversations. 
But he would often introduce into those conversations the autobiographical dimension and um, would often arrange to meet in a certain location because it was a place. Uh, Hugh Houghton notes how critical places in Derek's... Oh, great port of place. Yeah, and uh, Derek would choose places quite deliberately because he wanted to share, I believed, uh, something about his own past history in that place. So we met, for example, in Dunleary or in Soho and, of course, in Kinsale and in many places over the years. And that place of, of Kinsale, which is his home now, is, is where I met him in 2007. Um, and I remember that interview very clearly and, and the warmth and humour of, of the man and the poet. So let's hear an extract from that interview where he talks about place and displacement. Place and displacement? Well, of course, um, us Ulster Protestants are supposed to be um, to have an identity crisis and uh, not know where we belong and so on. Nonsense! <laughs> we belong here in Ireland, where we were born. In, in some sense, we belong here. I mean, we don't have to be here. But um, nonetheless, when, when I started out, we were still in that, that, uh, in that mindset and we were still thinking about regionalism and that sort of thing. Even though the 60s was already here, um, we were still in a mindset which had been created by a previous generation, people like John Hewitt and so on. And um, uh, we still thought about home and away, thought and wrote about it. Um, I like to be conscious of place, always conscious of setting, surroundings. I think when I write, I, I sort of... Uh, establish a location and uh, there's a line in uh, the last poem in this book Harbour Lights written here in this room in this chair uh, it says the, the hermit crab crawls to its holiday home this house is holiday flats as I told you people are permanently on holiday so to speak uh, they're rented out throughout the year and the hermit you know sometimes I, I feel like a hermit crab and um, so that's a, a kind of um, living in li- living not in in in, uh, in his own space, so to say. Uh, I don't own the house, in other words. So perhaps uh, it's a slightly unusual way of being, a bit on the edge of things. So whatever the reason, there you are. Yes, conscious of place, conscious of displacement. Though I must say, uh, this, you know, I'm very happy to be here. Mm. Also at home, where you are. Well, I am, yes, yes. And it's, uh, it's very conducive. Here is very conducive. You've got to have the sea nearby and the woods up the back. Bit of peace and quiet, you know, after a hectic life of cities. Well, I read the last section of Harbour Lights. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read the last couple of sections. Outside, the exhausted kids have wandered home. The house is quiet, calm till the next storm. When the time comes and if the coast is clear, work in some sort of order, let me hear the cries of children playing, but not too near. Tick of real time, the dark realities in the unreality of the mental gaze. A watery murmur, a drip of diesel oil, night silence listening to the dozy soul, the waves' confusion in the void. No dice, said Einstein, but each bit of rock might claim a different origin if it took its time. The faintest starfish with its pointed wobble might tell us otherwise if it took the trouble, and even the tiniest night-rustling pebble might solve the mystery if it had a voice. For everything is water, the world a wave, 
whole populations quietly on the move. Will the long voyage end here among friends and swimming with a loved one from white strands, the sea loud in our veins? It never ends or ends before we know it for everyone stands at the heart of life pierced by the sun and suddenly it's evening. Quasimodo, suddenly we're throwing a longer shadow. The hermit crab crawls to its holiday home. Dim souls wriggle in seething chaos, body language and new thought forming there already in hidden depths and exposed rock oases, those secret cultures where the sky pauses. Sand flats, a whispery fringe, discharging gases, a white dish drained by the receding sea, and trailing runic whips of tangled hair brushed and combed by the tide, exhaling air. No, this is Galapagos, and the old life force rides Daz and Exxon to the blinding surface. Down there a drenching of the willful sperm, congenital sea fight of the shrimp and worm, with somewhere the soft impulse of a lover. The millions swarming into pond and river to find the right place, find it, and live forever. The present poet, uh, Derek Mahan there from 2007. Uh, Stephen Ennis, so much in there. The humour, his, his sharp, sharp eye for society and what was happening around him at the time. And that image as well. Sometimes I feel like a hermit crab. There's so much strength in all of that. There certainly is. Um, you know, Derek has in some ways um, from the beginning set himself, deliberately set himself outside or on the outside of society or fashion or trend. And um, that's sometimes reflected in, in where he chooses to live as it is now, a quiet place as he describes it. But it's a place that gives him a vantage point on on the bustle, the, the busyness. Derek is is interested in uh, verities of of the heart and uh, truth truths that that do endure uh, and one hopes endure in poetry. You know the poetic form for him um, is a working out of forms that offer some compensation for this life that we live. And uh, his art, is, as we've noted, is, is rooted in, in these experiences. But the poem is a way for him to work out a structure and a form that uh, lends shape to the, the, the disorder and the chaos. And it may be a fictive shape, it may be uh, a transient one, but one hopes that the great work, and he's given us many great poems, one hopes that the great work will indeed endure. And uh, this this book uh, is is in service to that. It's it's very striking that the preface to that book begins with with two events: uh, the publication of Mahan's first book of poems, Night Crossing, in September 1968, and the outbreak of violence in Northern Ireland a few weeks later. Then the first chapter of the book itself begins with the German bombing of Harland and Wolfe in 1941, the year of the poet's birth. So violence and conflict in constant balance with celebration and joy. Mm -hmm. And that almost seems to set a tone for the life and the book. Very, very much so. Um, Derek Mann, um, as I argue in the book, uh, came to see himself in some way as a survivor of our civilization's barbarousness. And, And poetry itself is one of those instruments of survival. Um, one of the coping mechanisms, one of the ways that one can make beauty out of what's otherwise fraught disorder. And that disorder, again, coming back to the the notion of of suffering in the work, and one of his 
great poems, uh, a disused shed in, in County Wexford, explores, um, I suppose, so many of the themes that link to your argument. This, you know, a masterpiece of meditation on nature, on time, on connectedness and the tentative light of growth towards who knows what, maybe a kind of yeah. transcendence. And yeah. it, it remains this extraordinary poem of balance. It does. There's... Um you know, there's a sense of being bereft in in that poem. The the mushrooms bending towards light, the, the implements that have been abandoned to the slow growth of condensation and crustacean. There, there's a sense of abandonment, but that can't snuff out the desire. What what was there to do there but desire? That desire is is ultimately an affirmative impulse that I I believe runs through his poems from beginning to end and. That is a real triumph to uh, speak in an affirmative voice when all the evidence otherwise points in a different direction. Um, Let's listen to that poem, A Disused Shed in County Wexford. A Disused Shed in County Wexford Even now there are places where a thought might grow, Peruvian mines worked out and abandoned to a slow clock of condensation. An echo trapped forever and a flutter of wildflowers in the lift shaft. Indian compounds where the wind dances and a door bangs with diminished confidence. Lime crevices behind rippling rain barrels, dog corners for bone burials, and in a disused shed in County Wexford, deep in the grounds of a burnt-out hotel, among the bathtubs and the wash basins, a thousand mushrooms crowd to a keyhole. This is the one star in their firmament, or frames a star within a star. What should they do there but desire? So many days beyond the rhododendrons with the world waltzing in its bowl of cloud, they have learnt patience and silence, listening to the rooks querulous in the high wood. They have been waiting for us in a feature of vegetable sweat since Civil War days, since the gravel-crunching, interminable departure of the expropriated mycologist. He never came back, and light since then is a keyhole rusting gently after rain. Spiders have spun, flies dusted to mildew, and once a day perhaps they have heard something. A trickle of masonry, a shout from the blue, or a lorry changing gear at the end of the lane. There have been deaths, the pale flesh flaking into the earth that nourished it, and nightmares born of these and the grim dominion of stale air and rank moisture, those nearest the door grow strong. Elbow room, elbow room. The rest, dim in a twilight of crumbling utensils and broken pitchers, groaning for their deliverance, have been so long expectant that there is left only the posture. A half-century without visitors in the dark. Poor preparation for the cracking lock and creak of hinges. Magi, moonmen, powdery prisoners of the old regime, Web-throated, stalked like triffids, racked by drought and insomnia, only the ghost of a scream at the flashbulb firing squad we wake them with shows there is life yet in their feverish forms. Grown beyond nature now, soft food for worms, they lift frail heads in gravity and good faith. They're begging us, you see, in their wordless way, to do something, to speak on their behalf, or at least not to close the door again. Lost people of Treblinka and Pompeii, Save us, save us, they seem to say, let the God not abandon us, who have come so far in darkness and in pain. We too had our lives to live, you with your light meter and relaxed itinerary. Let not our naive labours have been in vain. 
Drake Mahan there reading a disused shed in County Wexford. Stephen Ennis, in, in your biography of, of Mahan, you weave poems through the book, in part as illustration, in part almost as an essential element of the text of the life. How did you look at a poem like that, for instance, that, that iconic poem of Mahan's in relation to and as a kind of illumination of the life? I looked at that particular poem in, in a number of different ways, and um, one uh, literally ties the poem quite directly to his close friendship with J.G. Farrell, and the poem being based on a, a passage in Farrell's novel, The Lung. So there were connections and sources that I was always interested in tracing, but those are, are not necessarily the most meaningful elements. And I think the more meaningful connection has to do with the themes that are explored there of, of abandonment, of spiritual desolation, of a, a hunger for some, something that can replace that absence or can fill that void, um, the striving. And, and, and so those themes, of course, connect with the life uh, from beginning to end in many, many ways. I say at one point in the book that the original injury was a loss of home, and the story of, of Derek's life has been the, the story of trying to find his way there again. And I think whether that's a personal story or a historical story, as it is for the lost people of Treblinka, it speaks on both levels. And of course, again, the personal becoming almost universal. That, you know, that's right. Constantly man looking to the international. That, that's right. And um, creating a, a personal mythology, a poetic persona that, that comes from his own uh, lived experience, but also communicates and resonates on these larger, in, in, in these larger realms. I remember a note Richard Ryan wrote for, for a Cladder Records selection mm-hmm. of Derek Mann's poems read by the poet in the early 70s. I think it might have been 1973. And about that particular poem, he said that it was totally devoid of sentimentality, but had a depth of compassion that brings Kafka and Beckett to mind. And I thought that was really acute. Yeah, yeah, uh, very nice. Yeah. Uh, Richard Ryan, a close reader of Derek's poetry, a close friend of his for many years. But yes, Derek Mann is a a very literary poet, and the echo of others' work in his work is ever-present. Certainly Beckett is, is there in many places. You make the point that that his writing has become um, more clearly not confessional, but but perhaps openly autobiographical in 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 recent years, and that must have made, in a sense, must have made your work uh, a little easier to to link uh, the life to to the poetry. Yes, uh, I think the the poems uh, Hudson Letter and and beyond have have clearly uh, become more um, based directly on on his own life and, um, but I would I would insist that that life um, the source of the poems in this life has been there from the very beginning, and um, I think reading this account of his life, one will will see those connections more clearly than than has perhaps been known or appreciated. Um, But yes, it became more explicit in the 1990s. The Hudson Letter, I have to say, is is one of my favourite of Derek Mahan's collections. Uh, So let's hear an extract from that. This one is um, an introductory uh, first section to... uh uh, a longish uh, poem I wrote called The Hudson Letter. This is about um, the time I lived in New York. It seems from this that um, that I'm within sound of the Hudson River. I'm not within sound of the Hudson River, only imagining it, but not too far, just a few blocks away. 
in Greenwich Village. And uh, this introduces the poem, which is, which is about, um, uh, about a day in the life. Winter, a short walk from the 10th Street Pier, and what of the kick start that should be here? The fishy ice lies thick on Gansevoort around the corner, and the snow shines bright about your country house this morning. Short the time left to find the serenity which for a lifetime has eluded me. A rented studio apartment in New York, five blocks from the river. Time to think and work. Long-suffering friends and visitors. The bars where Dylan Thomas spent his final hours, God rest him. But there's something missing here in this autistic slammer. Some restorative laid like a magic wand on everything. On bed, chair, desk and air conditioner. I often visualise in the neon slush that great heartbreaking moment in the gold rush where Chaplin, left alone on New Year's Eve, listens to life's feast from his little shack and the strains of Auld Lang Syne across the snow. Oh, show me how to recover my lost nerve. The radiators knock, whistle and sing. I toss and turn and listen when I wake to the first bird and the first garbage truck, hearing the lordly Hudson hardly flow to New York Harbour and the sea below. The lights go out along the Jersey shore, and as Manhattan faces east once more, dawn's early light on bridge and water tower. Respighi's temperate nightingale on WQXR pipes up, though stronger stations throng the ether. A radio serendipity to illustrate the resilience of our lyric appetite, carnivalesque or studiously apart. On tap in offices, lofts and desperate hoods, to Lorca's urinating multitudes. While I make coffee and listen for the news at eight, but first the nightingale, sing muse. From the Hudson letter, Derek Mann, reading from his own poem there. Stephen Ennis, so much there in in terms of of Mann's mastery of of rhyme, of rhythm, but also again of of place. And I'm I'm fascinated by you know, his his take on America. Uh, and American life, and it it seems it seems so particular, and yet it it seems to carry so much freight that is true, but could only be seen and brought together by man. I mean, how how do you think he sees and and gives us America? Well, uh, the America he describes in the Hudson letter is a very um, uh, literary America, and as is the West Village where he was living at the time. And so not only do you have Dylan Thomas um, associations just around the corner, uh, but W.H. Auden as well, and uh, Joseph Brodsky and, and others too. And so the poem um, is, is in some ways a, a tribute to those poets that have come before and inhabited that, that place. Um, he's well aware of the of, of poetry as as a mythical structure, and he's he's reaching to those earlier uh, predecessors and and trying to say something new. Um, what's most remarkable to me about the Hudson letter, and I, I too am a great admirer of that poem, is is what personal chaos it came out of. Uh, the New York years were a very difficult time personally for Derek, and. Um, it took uh, many years to actually write that poem sequence. Uh, he creates the appearance in the published text that it was written over a nine-month period, as if it were a nine-month period of gestation of some kind. 
Uh, but in fact, he worked on it for years uh, to get the 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 nuance, the the rich um, literary associations that are embedded on every page, uh, to get that there in such a lyrical form. Um, but ultimately, what he's he's working through in that poem, uh, for all of its beauty, he's he's working. Uh, to a restoration of his own voice. It had been almost 10 years before, since he had had a, a major collection of poems published. He had written very little over that 10-year period. And the Hudson Letter, quite literally, is the poem through which he writes his own recovery. And so it's a poem not only about that recovery, it's a poem through which he achieves that that recovery of voice, and the lyricism that you hear in the passage he just read uh, is ample evidence, I think, of that. For all his attempts to be free of history, you say, the pattern traced in his new collected poems of 2011 in some ways is in some ways more reflective of his time than is what you call Heaney's nostalgic gaze. Um, Man's relationship with Heaney uh, is a very interesting one. Friends, uh, sometimes poetic rivals, a great deal of shared territory. and But sometimes you wonder just how much common ground. Um, and I suppose Man's Ode to McNeese in, in uh, Carador Churchyard captures this essential moment of friendship and tension uh, between Mahan and Heaney. Yes, yes, but tremendous, uh, tremendous friendship, tremendous admiration, um, a, a very close relationship during many periods of, of Derek's life. Um, but there was also a sense in which they were rivals as well. Um, others have have uh, downplayed the sense of rivalry, but I, I think it's unmistakably there. But but rivalry can also be a spur to great things, um, and I think in a way they they each were in a poetic conversation with one another over the years. Um, I do think that there was a sense in which they they changed places and. Um, as a young man, um, Derek Mann was often uh, viewed as as the the greater poet. Um, but that that opinion, to, to the extent it might have been true, uh, clearly reversed at some point over their careers. And uh, certainly, with the Nobel, um, Derek Mann came to see himself, came to feel himself cast in shadow, and as others did of of that generation. Um, and 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 so that that event, which um, was such an extraordinary cause for celebration uh, nationally and internationally in the world of poetry, that that event contributed really to to Derek Mann's uh, subsequent withdrawal from um, a public life. Um, but the friendship was always there, and uh, Seamus Heaney and Mary Heaney were deeply deeply supportive. Um, would offer him a bed and a meal and um, many forms of support over the years. And of course, there are some fine photos of uh, of Mahan and Heaney and Michael Longley in the book, and another lovely photograph of uh, of Derek Mahan as best man at the at the wedding of Michael and Edna Longley in in Dorky in nineteen sixty four. And their friendship, his friendship with the Longleys, is a remarkable friendship that has obviously helped to sustain all of them. It, it it was a remarkable friendship and remains so, I believe. But um, there there are things about that friendship that are are truly exceptional. Um, 
Um, D- Derek Mann's friendship with Michael Longley also coincided with his real estrangement from his own parents. And so when he publishes Night Crossing, his first major collection of poems, he, he dedicates it um, to, to Michael. And that's a dedication that one would typically make to one's to one's parents. There is a sense in which Michael was a um, uh, a family. Uh, Michael and Edna both were a family for him. Um, and when he traveled back from France to be there for their wedding and to serve as best man, he felt and expressed in a letter that he would then be utterly alone in the world. There was a sense of being bereft. It was another form of abandonment, or so it seemed at the time. Uh, But a very important and formative friendship um, that endures to this day. Uh, You mentioned Derek Mann's withdrawal from public life and the way he turned his back on on public honour and self-promotion, I suppose, essentially, is is very striking. Turning down an OBE, turning down the Queen's Gold Medal for poetry, requesting to be left out of the who's, updated who's who in Ireland, and insisting that no review copies of, of his collected poems be sent out. Um, this rejection of the, of the public sphere, it, it's a rare and, and somehow quite an honourable position that, that, that deserves respect. It does, and... Um it's not seeking of popular acclaim, not the the noise of of popular acclaim, but it, but it's an acceptance of of those readers who will find find you anyway. Uh, and Derek uh, Derek has always written for a small. Uh, community of of sympathetic readers. My own hope is that that community grows, but it's always um, been um, an intimate circle that he's written for. What's your your own feeling about the book now that that it's done? Um, You say you hope that Derek Mahan will will read it and and come to see uh, its value and, and, and its place. I presume your main reason for writing it was to cast light on the poems, on on the work, and how his life uh, has has shaped the poetry. Well, I respect Derek's um, sense of withdrawal. Um, one side of me respects that sense of withdrawal. One side of me also rejects it utterly uh, to deny the circulation of review copies um, for his collected poems. Um, I, I object, and this book is a statement of objection, and partly an effort to bring Derek uh, back into the public life, not in a superficial way, but uh, to bring his poems alive for a new generation of readers. Of course, it's it's the first biography of of Derek Mann as well. And in the afterword to the book, you quote him um, from a recent letter uh, where he says that the prospect of the book has been disturbing his peace of mind. And he has to banish all thought of it and pretend it isn't happening. Uh, does that does that upset you that that he feels like that? It's entirely consistent with his attitude towards uh, uh, self promotion at earlier stages of his life. So it, so I don't find it. I, I'm not shocked by it. I'm not surprised by it. At the same time, I hope he will come to see that the impulse behind this book has been a a deep, deep admiration. In one of his um, early poems, The Forger, he he writes about a 
a forger who does not have the artistry of the original artist, perhaps, uh, but even at one remove, the thing I meant was love, he writes in that poem. And I would take that, if I may, and say, even at one remove, the thing that I've meant here is love. And I hope he comes to see that. Could I ask you to read from the end of your biography, where where you seek, I suppose, to sum up a great deal of what you say about Derek Mahan and his life and art? I'd be happy to. What is clear is that the origin of man's art lies in suffering. Poetry offered him forms with which to seek some peace with the world, some state of wholeness that often eluded him in life. Let me in, let me in, he cries in the Hudson letter, because the original injury was a displacement from home, and the story of his life has been the story of his attempts to find his way there again. In the end, man made Kinsale that fictive home. It was a provisional one at best, another temporary address, a rented flat on a high hill and a writing desk at the window overlooking the harbor below. The setting brings to mind the flotsam left at the shore in a number of his most memorable poems. From the beginning, he has been taking an inventory of these losses, seaweed, rack, broken toys, hat boxes, pieces of wood, a boot, discarded tins, and a thousand limpets left by the ebb tide. These are primal images in man's poetry of loss, signs of our own insignificance in the face of nature's more insistent patterns. As a poet, man found consolation in poetic forms, in rhyme, which he once called the pre-linguistic drumbeat. In the heavens, the planets spin in their orbits, the tide washes over a muddy beach, and even in the depth of winter, spring cannot be far away. In an abandoned garden shed, mushrooms bend towards light. Somewhere, a shirt hanger makes an unexpected sound, and sunlight gleams off a rain-soaked hubcap. In the end, the losses he records are not his alone, but ours also. Stephen Ennis reading from the end of his biography of Derek Mahan after the Titanic, A Life of Derek Mahan, and that book is published by Gill and Macmillan. Stephen, thanks so much. Thank you very much. At the top of the programme, you heard from the RTE Radio Archives 2011, an excerpt from the premier performance of Bill Whelan's setting of the poem After the Titanic by Derek Mahan, with Morgan Crowley on vocals, Bill Whelan on piano and Zoe Conway on violin. Derek Mahan reading After the Titanic and a disused shed in County Wexford were from the Cladis CD Derek Mahan, Open Air Selected Poems, 1960-2005. to The excerpts from other poems included in the programme were read by Derek Mahan in an interview with me in Kinsale in 2007. On next week's Arts Tonight, we have a discussion with artists, academics and curators on the subject of The Artist as Citizen, recently recorded in Limerick, our city of culture, during the 20th anniversary celebrations of the World Academy of Music and Dance at the University of Limerick. Join us then. Good night. Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon Inneon Loon.